Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. That life of Brian video, I, I really like. Now, I still struggle with the crucifixion scene, if I'm honest, when I, I watch a thing. But the whole premise of this thing, to me, is a masterpiece of the ab- absurdity of where our search for truth, reality and meaning can take us. It was never made by the Python group to be a mockery of Jesus. It was meant to be a mockery of the absurdity that we get involved with as people who can mistake Brian for the Messiah. And um, how imagination and reality can become connected and and, and fused is dealt with here. So, so, So imagination and reality get get connected and fused, which is where the word confused comes from. So when imagination and reality get connected, we become confused. And, and, and I also found it interesting just noting the end of the video, and for those who obviously will be listening online, please take time to watch it, it's very funny, and, uh, but it will help you to understand some of the ethos of this morning. I thought it was interesting how readily we label anyone not accepting our conclusions as unbeliever, persecute, kill. See, the point of this morning is this, that the problem with humanity is not that we are God rejecters, but that we are God creators. That's the problem. And if you don't understand that and focus on that, the problem is you will think it's an either or, but actually it's the same and. And therefore, our journey becomes quite complicated because it's not a matter of God or no God. It's a matter of amidst all the stuff about men and gods, where do we go? It was the realisation and frustration of all this that caused the 13th century mystic Meister Eckhart to pray, God, rid me of God. I want you to think about that for a moment. Here's somebody devoted and committed to prayer and to the best of his ability seeking to find the revelation of who God is, looking at 13 centuries of the development of the Christianity that he was in, who wants to pray, God, rid me of God. It also drew out of the 17th century French mathematician philosopher Blaise Pascal the statement I've used with you many times before, God created man in his image and man has returned the favour. Do you understand that statement? God created man in his image and man has returned the favour. So the question when you bring this down is, am I guilty of that? Isn't it funny, we can sit in our gilded tower of church existence and of course, we're not guilty of returning that favour by creating the God that we want in the image that we have decided. But the question is, am I guilty? The question is, are we guilty 
of that very thing and do we need to pray like Meister Eckhart, God, rid me of God. I want to read you this. We may now live in an increasingly religious, we may live now in increasingly, increasingly irreligious times. And there are many like the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche who have discarded all notions of God or gods and truly believed themselves to be free of their influence. But I assure you, gods are still very much alive and at work in our midst. They've taken on different forms, to be sure, but they are as present as ever, and we are as prone as ever to behave in, in life, uh, to, to behave in life in Brian-esque ways. See, it's not our need for God, but our no-beyond-doubt hypothesis that bothers me. Need for God doesn't bother me, but no-beyond-doubt more and more has bothered me. You throw some sacred text in, and whether it be the Holy Bible or Richard Dawkins' atheist Bible, The God Delusion, and we become convinced that the God we created is the authentic one, and this is the only understanding of that being. I'm deeply suspicious of anything that engages the means and processes of religious practice throughout the ages. And in case you haven't figured, that's why I have such problems with what is happening in the midst of our trials and pandemics now. And I have to be honest with you that I have in these days an uncomfortable relationship with the Bible and the tradition in which I was raised. I think to some degree we have come to an agreed, agreed um, peace um, between us at the moment. But there came a time in which I feel, I'm speaking from personal experience, that the Bible replaced God. And interpretation of written words replaced revelation and presence. See, I believe that God revealed is the whole essence of the incarnation masterpiece. Not this should draw you to the Bible, and the Bible's good, and I still love the Bible, even though we have this uncomfortable relationship at the moment. But the truth is, the incarnation of Jesus, the embodiment, God in the flesh, was meant to draw us to God revealed. The essence of it is the incarnation, but it's drawing us to God revealed. That's the point, God revealed. So a friend of ours, Jeff Turner, wrote this. It isn't that we as Christians should not consider our text sacred, but that we ought to be humble enough to recognise that it is often just our interpretation of this text that we consider sacred and orthodox. And that maybe we've missed what it is that truly makes it sacred. On this point, I agree with the late Bishop John Shelby Spong when he says the great sin of evangelicals is literalism. I believe that one thing alone has been the major contributor to prevent us from seeing 
that the God as seen and witnessed in Jesus is the ungodlike God and that is literalism. And there the problem or the freedom begins. So at the pinnacle of this surely is the omission from Jesus' conversation of any talk of God in favour of the introduction of the idea of Father. And this is so often missed in the expression of Jesus' life and his ministry that he was not drawing anybody's attention to God as people perceive God, but he introduced a new dimension of thinking to try and shift the agenda to the issue of Father. I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He began to bring it to a character function relationship level that was not really existent within the I believe in God aspect of the community at that time. So that leaves us in this place where the rediscovery of God necessitates the loss of all former conceptions of God. And that is my challenge. It's what I've been wrestling with. It's what I do wrestle with. I can't see me stopping wrestling with it. And it's what a cue we have designed to nail our colours to the mast over. The rediscovery of God necessitates the loss of all former conceptions of God. Old garments must be lost, to refer to a Jesus parable. And old wineskins must be tossed if we are to ever discover God afresh. All of this may be why I believe my understanding of the Christ is more important than my understanding of the embodied Jesus and my embracing of the religion which has grown out of it. Believe me, it is a revelation of greater magnitude. I even fear that Jesus has become like a good luck charm. We, we have a little bit of fun in our house now because on our journey don't quite know where to place prayer sometimes and I'll pray for you. And, you know, so we tend to tell each other when we're about to do something, good luck in Jesus' name. <laughs> now, it's very sincere. It's also a little tongue-in-cheek because we're trying to open up the agenda a little bit more than the whole thing of, I thank Jesus that there were 300 people on that plane and 299 of them died, but God spared me. What does that say about God and the 299? Now, he may have done. I am not doubting miraculous intervention. I'm not doubting higher powers. But what I am saying is sometimes the way we frame that and the way we model that does not do justice to the God of the Bible or the God of Jesus or the God who is real. I feel that sometimes... Jesus has become a good luck charm. Oh, if I just do it in the name of Jesus, if I just say in the name of Jesus, and it's become more a good luck charm than it has a connection with the reality of the Christ. And I also have to say that uh, I think worship sometimes has become, maybe all the time, I don't know, has become the mood-inducing drug of the participants. You know, so we have a way to create the mood and to bring people in and then, and then we engage with the good luck Jesus as opposed to the reality of life and God present and the true incarnation and Christ in us, the hope of glory. So in view of this, maybe the work of the Christian is to call a godly world to godlessness.
not a godless world to godliness. When the Jewish religious leaders claimed their heritage, origin and orthodoxy were their qualifying credentials and God was their own, Jesus dismantled their self-affirming belief and accused them of having no idea of who or what God really is and having the devil as their father and not the God they claimed. And you can read that, John chapter 8, John chapter 5 for some reading for you. So could it be that the call of Jesus is actually a call to become godless as we would understand God's to be? If we look at history, it tells us quite clearly that perception and the unknown create gods. We in the West, in Christianity, are not the only people to have labelled a god. You can go through any culture throughout time and history and space and location and you will find whether you go from ancient China through to the Akkadians, the Sumerians, the Philistines, the Jews, that we incessantly created gods. Now this is uncomfortable and is often not talked about in church because the natural assumption, like I said, is that, is that we have not created God in our image. We found the true God, the only God, the one God. And that may be true. I'm not disputing that. There is a whole way we can look at this to say, have we found the authenticity of who the Bible calls the Abba of Jesus? But to think that we just by default happen to create the essence of the one true God has been the claim of every religion throughout all time in all of history. They had the one true God. And so going back to Monty Python's life of Brian, what we do is we say, unbeliever, persecute, kill. And the church has been as guilty of that as any other religion in history. The Middle Ages were a very dark period for the church in its history, when we really did find unbelievers, persecute them and kill them. And then it didn't just become unbelievers, i.e. you don't believe in the God of Abraham. It became unbelievers as you don't believe in our description of and requirements towards our belief in the God of Abraham. Therefore, your belief in the God of Abraham cannot be accepted and you must be persecuted. And so we killed people and we created wars over, over the religious perspective of, is the Protestant God right? Is the Catholic God right? When I would say neither one is. Because once you begin to manifest that way, neither the Protestant nor the Catholic has truly found the manifestation of the divine source of all things. Also, the unknown creates God. So, so throughout history, before we had science the way we have it, how do you explain storms? How do you explain volcanoes? How do you explain earthquakes? How do you explain tsunamis? How do you explain it? And so we put it into the hands of the gods and then there were strange things like the, the celestial beings in the heavens that that would, would rise over us and disappear again, like God's appearing and disappearing and, and the moon in the night. And so we had celestial beings, sun gods and moon gods. 
And then we had fertility gods because we wanted to have children and we had gods for our harvest and, and we went on creating gods. All I'm trying to show to you is that we can live within a very confined space of thinking there is no story beyond our story. And the clips from the crudes to me gives a great example of where gods mostly come from. And sometimes our gods turn up in our life. It's fear and the unknown and that which we cannot explain. So in the current crisis we face, the danger is a religion rises up and we create another God, whether we call that the God vaccine, whether we call that God treatment, whatever we call that God, and this is not a for or against, the truth is fear unknown and that which cannot be explained by very nature makes human beings create gods and develop religions. And then tell me if I'm wrong, but within that religion, you begin to say, unbeliever, persecute, kill. Whichever side of the fence you sit. And once, once that thing is created, the same thing will drive the belief. So that's when we then begin to develop our beliefs around that to support that position. You can tell from the crudes and the bananas that the idea of appeasement of the gods runs really deep in the history of religion. I love the way this so lightheartedly is saying so much about our understanding of the gods, our fear of the gods, and how we appease the gods, that even in the crudes, and that's part two, it's the second one, and it's brilliant, they felt that the only way to appease the threat was to throw bananas over the compound. And what that clip expresses is the uncertainty experienced over the nature of the gods. Always that little measure of uncertainty. I, I grew up with a certain uncertainty. In our language, I knew that I was saved because I'd asked Jesus into my heart and I'd repented of my sins several times. But there was also the uncertainty because am I really right and what if, what if I sin? So if I sin now that I've given my life to Jesus, what then? And so we had various ideas about that and then frightening verses that people would bring up like, you know, if you blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, you were blaspheming against God and that was the end of that. So I know some of you in here who were raised in church have gone through times where you've been terrified because you thought that you'd blasphemed the Holy Spirit and, and that now you, there was no repentance, no way back. Well, that's nonsense, let me just tell you now. It's a complete wrong interpretation anyway of what he's spoken about. But we were given those things. And then to get around that, some people developed an idea called once saved, always saved, which meant, but then the problem is they were also the people who had the frozen chosen. So if you weren't picked by God, right? If you weren't picked by God, there was no point even trying anyway. But if you were picked, once you were picked, you were picked. See, all this stuff comes out of, out of the religious thing of, of fear and the unknown and that which we can't explain. And then we begin to develop around it beliefs and ideas. The bananas were keeping us safe, they said. Can you imagine the stupidity of that? The bananas are keeping us safe. And then, and then uh, Guy, the young one, asks, safe from what? 
And it would do well for every church to begin to wrestle with that question. Jesus is keeping us safe. Safe from what? Because the ultimate conclusion would have to be in many situations safe from God. So we become not saved from our sins, we become saved from God because God is going to destroy us for our sins so God sends Jesus to save us from himself. Can you see some of the absurdities not of the coming of Jesus and not of the purpose of God but of our descriptions and explanations? It poses the question, have we seen Jesus as the great banana protecting us from what lies behind the wall? And I don't mean to be irreverent, but some ideas of Jesus are no better than the idea of the great banana protecting us from what lies beyond the wall. And at what point does the God we create live in our heads, not the heavens? You see, the fear of Phil, when he realises that the crudes have eaten all the bananas. All attention is focused away from the reality of the situation, which is that someone, Phil, somewhere diverted the flow. So the problem is, they're not getting the flow anymore. What has been put in place has meant that they have built an enclosure, an encampment, an imprisonment, this is our camp, this is us, this is where we live. And then we're trying to appease what they thought was outside when actually when you get into the fullness of the story, the problem was that the flow had been stopped. And now it only floats, and, and, and this, let, me, let me read this again because this is important. All attention is focused away from the reality that the situation, which is that someone, somewhere, diverted the flow. And now it only flows to some and not to all. And out of that comes all the problems experienced. And let me tell you, the problems we experience in the wrestling with the gods is because we believe the flow only goes to some and not to all. The great and real sin was the diverting of the source of life to feed one specific project. And I would have to say I have been guilty of that and we have been guilty of that. So the question would be, have we stolen God? Have we redirected the flow of life so that it feeds only our compound? Remember they were living in the compound now. Why do we need a compound? So at what point in the process of any search for God may we be deemed to have left the realm of reality and entered the realm of superstition? The commandment in Exodus 20 verse 4 says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. It may not purely be referenced to a sculptured or painted image, but to our fantasy and to all the power of our imagination as well. And then John wrote in 1 John, little children, keep yourself from idols. It would seem that it's not things readily noticeable as idols that they are being warned against, but rather false images of the Jesus in whose name they forsook idolatry in the first place. I fear that for many years I was feeding the equivalent of a punch monkey. 
I love that at the end, the scream to me is classic. And when the mist clears and he sees what it is that he has been serving, the shock begins. And I fear that for many years I was feeding the equivalent of a punch monkey. And that in endeavouring to preserve our compound garden, greater truth was ignored and imagination elevated that which is not God and diverted our attention away from the essential nature of the flow. And to quote Guy in the film, this is not good because this is not God. Perpetual model of gods through the ages has been very much the same. There's some variations on the theme, but the basic theme is this. The gods are angry. The gods must be appeased. You'll be rewarded for doing good. You'll be punished for doing bad. Now, I would say to you that any god that you are introduced to that fits within that model, run. Because that has always been the model of gods when men got their hands onto the idea of the gods and we tried to figure it out. And so I have to say that much of my Christian experience, my perception was God is angry. He can't look on me because I'm a sinner. His anger must be appeased. So it was more about him feeling okay about himself before he could feel okay about me. And that then you are rewarded for doing good and you are punished for doing bad. That is the perpetual model of gods through the ages. And it's not the model that I now look for or long for. That's why we coined the phrase from looking at the transcendency that comes through scripture of the ungodlike God, the God that we are looking for, seeking to bring to you and offering you to be part of is the ungodlike God. This God is different. See, the wonderful thing is this God gives all of himself to you. It's not the other way around. You have to give all yourself to him. But that's a good response. And I also find it interesting that even the models coming out of the life and ministry of Jesus and into Paul's teaching say something very different because now it's something that we call the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion or the Lord's Table. Unlike history, it's no longer men that are feeding the gods. It's God that is feeding men. He invites us to a table where he feeds us, but history says you have to feed the gods. Bananas. And you can have the big banana or all the small bananas, but it's still bananas to appease. And from the last video clip, I have to say, you should not have to be able to speak punch monkey to come to a revelation of truth. But again, I see so many parallels with this in the way I was raised. You have to say certain things in a certain way. You have to speak punch monkey to come to a revelation of truth. That should not be necessary and is not necessary. Nor should we be in the grip of perpetually needing bananas to feed a monster. See, this is one of my issues that I've wrestled with. If and when violence becomes the highest expression of love and sacrifice the necessary method for appeasement, the point has been seriously missed. When the monster didn't have bananas to devour, 
in the film, what did he do? He devoured people. And we've translated that same thing. Somehow we finished it with a monster God who if he doesn't get his bananas, he devours people. So we invented the idea of hell, an eternal conscious torment, punishment, in order to make it that if he doesn't get his bananas, then he devours the people. So either he devours the offering or he devours the people. But see, what we saw there was the problem had come because the flow had been diverted. And finding the flow is way more important than finding the monster. Seems to me the focus on feeding the monster has interfered with our finding the flow and therefore prevented us from finding the awesome revelation of who the divine really is. According to Aristotle, nature abhors a vacuum. You know what a vacuum is? It's a space in which there is no matter. Now, while that may now not only be true, but with exceptions, or it's not true without exceptions, that, 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 that nature abhors a vacuum because we, we've now got molecular science that teaches us some different things. But it's certainly very true in the arena of religion and the gods. That there comes a vacuum. And I'm aware that the way we have led this house and the way we have taught, what it does, first of all, it creates a vacuum because it begins to take away some of the things that we relied on that were probably constructs anyway. It takes them away and we find ourselves left with a void. We find ourselves left with a vacuum. And the laws of nature are that where there is a vacuum, something will come in to fill it because vacuums actually suck in. And we, th we have a vacuum in our soul inside of us that will suck in if we don't determine what's going to fill the void. And the vacancies left by and within our God beliefs will always find themselves filled by something else, whether it calls itself God or not. It might call itself atheism, but it's the same thing. And so here's the truth. The void, which is unavoidable, the void must become a womb rather than a vacuum. Because if the void is left to be a vacuum, it will suck into it stuff that will put us in much a problem after we've been there as we were before. In all our wrestlings with God, we'll just go to more wrestlings and we'll just redefine and recreate God and we won't have taken notice of the statement, God, free us from God. The void must become a womb. Now I'm sure some listening to this may wish to call me a peanut-headed sample of nature's carelessness followed by unbeliever, persecute and kill. I have no doubt about that. But your understanding of me would be just about equal to your understanding of God if you hold that opinion. So instead of yet another version, denomination or tribe of religion filling the vacuum, the womb brings to birth a Christ consciousness in us. And when we submit to the womb rather than the vacuum, it begins to bring a Christ consciousness. And the Christ consciousness is not a religious consciousness. It is bigger than a religious consciousness because it begins to link us to the flow that is the source of all things. I said this some weeks ago, Christ consciousness is not the ability to recite a set of words about Jesus. 
or reference a particular felt experience at some point in life, but the immovable, constant and present awareness of a oneness at work in all things, a belonging that goes way beyond belief, a knowing that cannot be produced by purely academic or religious pursuit. Within that consciousness, even doubt is not destructive, and even failing beliefs and even failing beliefs cannot derail the purpose and potential that is the miracle called you. Faith happens at the point where our beliefs run aground. And that's why I'm trying to nudge you even more today in our understanding and thoughts about God that we can honestly be like Meister Eckhart and say, I'm not afraid to say, God, rid me of God. And so I also said this to you a few weeks ago and I want to read it to you again as I bring things to a close. Looking back on my dance with belief and doubt, I have regrets, just a few. I regret all the energy I invested in perfecting beliefs promoting them, defending them, and imposing them on others. I regret how I used my beliefs as a yardstick to measure, judge, accept, and reject others and myself. I regret how much deference I showed to belief police and doctrinal gatekeepers who were more like prison guards than good shepherds. My regrets fuel this hope that future generations will learn to guide people beyond obsession with beliefs and into faith. Faith that breathes meaning into life. Faith that flows through consciousness. Faith that joins the dot, not through a set of pre-prescribed numbers steps, but simply through recognising and living in the now and moving to the number next. In spite of these regrets, I do not regret my journey of faith and doubt. I do not regret who I have become. Faith and doubt together have made me who I am and I wouldn't want to live without either. And so I continue to join the dots. While belief seems to just paint a pictures on the wall of your compound, doubt wants to cut a hole and put a window in it called the window of faith. Then you will learn to trust the flow not fear the monster. Because the truth is God is love and there is no fear in love. May we feel that love today, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash Q Church York. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.